Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and good morning or good afternoon, depending on what part of the world you're in, and welcome to Unhedged. And again, this week, we're honored to have Douglas Borthwick with us. Doug, good morning to you, or good afternoon. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? You know, I don't know. I, I uh, uh, It was interesting this weekend. The, the talk of the town was this Twitter photo of this facility in Iran and uh, this latest tweet, which seems to have pushed all the military folks that we know out here in uh, in Singapore over the edge. They, they just can't believe that this happened. Uh, I, I haven't seen it at all. So fill me in. No, it's, it's really interesting. He basically has a classified photo. Uh, it looks like it was presented to him during a security briefing. And it's of a uh, launching pad of a rocket facility in Iran. And the I'll try to pull it up here while we're talking. But basically, it's an antagonizing tweet like, you know, really sorry that that happened. Hope you guys figure out who did it. And it's funny when you look at the photo, you can actually see like the the flash component of a, of a uh, like you know someone taking a picture. And then uh, all the DoD folks went nuts because he he used it from a security briefing. And then today he basically said, "Well, I'm the president and I can do whatever I want." You know, and and now folks are like, "This is you know, it's never happened where somebody's actually leaked something that was classified." It's just unbelievable. Right. But I think the definition of classified actually does come from the president. So it is something that he can do. But one, one thing that I do find interesting, and, and now I know what you're talking about, is that the, the president did say that they were not behind the scuttling of this uh, Iranian missile test. Now, if, if the U.S. didn't scuttle it, you got to figure there's only a couple of other players within that region that would try to scuttle a test like that. And so I think we'd probably, you know, best to look in, in that direction. Yeah, and and I don't think any of us doubt uh, who that other counterpart would be. It's just interesting that he would choose to to provoke it, and and uh, especially and you know maybe we can use this as a means of dovetailing into the genes the G seven. I mean, here you had Macron who actually tried to sneak in one of the Iranian ministers during the G seven, and uh, so I don't think it's any coincidence that this happened when it did. What what were your thoughts and takeaways from uh, from the G seven? I think that the G7, how it's composed these days, is a lot different from when Trump, you know, came into office. And I think he's got a lot more supporters there. And and I think what kind of struck me the most was 
the friendly way with which he now has a rapport with Abe in Japan, uh, with, with Boris in, uh, in the UK and with Macron in France. And it seems to me that he, you know, he's got his, he's got his group of buddies and, and I think that, that that's going to actually serve him quite well. And it's, it's a much different group. At, at first, I think the group looked at him when he came into office and thought, you know, who's this buffoon that's coming over here from the U.S.? And now I think you know, they're used to his uh, particular charm and, uh, and you know, are sort of you know, working with him. Obviously, the fact that there's no sort of uh, agreed upon view that comes out of communique is sort of new. But at the same time, when you look at, you know, something like, I think one of the one of the takeaways was, you know, what are we doing for the environment from G7? And the U.S. didn't go to that meeting, but they ended up offering up, a, you know, twenty odd million dollars to save the rainforests in uh, Brazil, which obviously is is not enough. And so Trump, I think, you know, is sort of pointing out that, you know, what we're trying to do or what people are suggesting for the environment, it really is there for the headlines, but isn't really much there in terms of for the dollars. And, and that was you know, proven very much, very much so. The U.S. also, I think, got some concessions regarding trade and that folks are certainly getting on the U.S. side that, that trade is important. I think that, if anything, this is probably a setting up for some sort of multilateral action when it comes down to trade. And remember, G, you know, China's not at this meeting, and so it, it allows them to give some sort of view it, it, it's a, it was a place for him to talk to his compatriots about what they could do for China or against China. And even though that wasn't talked about coming out of the meeting, I think that there were some discussions. Yeah, and actually to, 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 to build off that on China, uh, here the, the sentiment now seems to be very clearly that China has made the decision that they're really not going to do anything. That, that there's really no, when, when they've gamed this out, there's no benefit to them. Uh, to do anything to facilitate any type of outcome where where it it as in other words they're taking a much longer view of this and basically saying Trump at the end of the day will capitulate he's lost the support of his base back in the states and politically he's just not going to be able yeah, to withstand well, I, this I think around Wednesday there? Thursday of last week certainly China seemed to take the the air out of any sort of thought that this would be a back and forth rising war. China sort of said, look, you know, let's just see how things go. Let's not retaliate anymore. Let's just sit back and watch this. Trump has to find a way to keep the farmers happy. The Democrats are chipping away at that. And the news has now shifted away in the U.S. The news has shifted away from talking about Russia, from talking about Trump's finances, to now talking about recession, recession, recession. Now, you know, three or four years ago, I'd say five years ago, I was on CNBC, and then they said, you know, Yo, you can't talk about recession in the U.S., you can't be negative on the U.S. economy. And now it's that the mantra is, well, let's be as negative as we can, almost sort of pushing the U.S. into recession. You know, one of the, one of the things everyone points to right now is you know, the, re, the, re, the, the, the inverted yield curve, which I think inverted yield curves in markets that are free is important. But you have to remember, these markets these days are not free markets. When you have negative interest rates, that's not because the market's setting it. It's because... Central banks are setting them. I, I think that that actually is an important nuance um, uh, to the discussion. And, and and actually, let's just go back to your point on uh, the recession part, because it does seem that that uh, I mean, right now, 
you know, if I was a gambling man and if I was going to bet a sing dollar on an outcome, I think the the probability of a recession is is quite significant going into 2020. And I don't see how, uh, you know, this because even you look at the 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 conference out of Jackson Hole. I mean, you had the central banks even saying this is a function now of fiscal stimulus. This this is now a political uh, solution that needs to occur. And you know, he can't get out of his own way on on some of the basic stuff. And at the same time, you know, it's one of those rare moments where I'll actually agree with Treasury that they're seriously considering these longer dated bonds. And I just don't understand why the U.S. isn't issuing bales of debt at these rates and, you know, putting out 50, 100 year bonds. I just don't understand what why we can't get this done. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a reason why. It's because certainly rates are low in the U.S. right now. But when they're lower at, at in countries that have lesser credit quality you got to believe that the U.S. believes that rates will go even lower. And, you know, why is the U.S. that has the largest fixed income market, AAA, um, attracts capital from abroad in spades? Why on earth are yields here positive while they're negative elsewhere in the world? And, you know, why are we paying folks a premium to buy something that really should be traded at a premium, not in yield, but rather in price? And I think that that's, that's the mispricing right now in, in, in the world is that U.S. fixed income shouldn't be trading at one and a half percent in the long end. It should be trading, you know, similar to where Germany's is trading, which is negative. And so maybe, maybe, maybe Treasury believes, you know what, we could probably do 50s and 100, but we could do them at par. Maybe we could do it at zero. Doesn't it get a little difficult, though, if, if at the end of the day, in terms of spreads, if if. Because, because again, I always go back to using the vernacular in the hedge fund industry, you know, in terms of relative returns or absolute returns. I mean, here, the U.S. is the benchmark. That's the bogey that that everything is pricing against. I mean, isn't it? Do we get into a little bit of a dangerous area if we start to say, well, if Germany's negative? And again, I'm not disparaging the credit issue there that, that you know, all things being equal, we should not be paying a premium for capital when these other nations aren't. But I, I think to your point earlier, there's a little bit of gamesmanship as far as how these other negative yields were derived. And at the end of the day, you know, the U.S. market is the bogey. Part, part of me feels like, you know what, maybe, you know, because negative rates could whipsaw very quickly in the opposite direction, you know, and, and that's the other, you hear Gunlock and everybody else in the fixed income market talking about, you know, that is a potential well, apocalypse. But do we get into a danger zone if the U.S. is trying to time it? It's a potential apocalypse if the central banks of the world stop buying their own debt. And as long as central banks are out there buying their own fixed income, then the negative rates can be there forever. Because once again, these guys can print their own currency, buy their own fixed income, and keep rates at artificially low rates for as long as they want to. And that, I think, is, is, is the big problem. And that then that's sort of where, where, where Trump's coming from, where he says, look, this is completely unfair. You know, the US has been raising rates. Europe you know, has been cutting rates essentially and doing QE. We stopped QE. Now we're behind the curve. The dollar's getting stronger and stronger because U.S. yields are much higher relative to the rest of the world. You know, something needs to change. Obviously, the Fed's catching up with that. They cut rates. So maybe they'll cut another 50 basis points by the end of the year. Who knows? But I think that, you know, he's pointing to the fact that why are we paying folks a premium to own what essentially is, you know, the number one asset that folks want to own in the world? I think it's a very, very fair question. Now, there's one thing you can do. You can either cut rates aggressively in the U.S. 
to equal these negative rates across the world. Or you can tax foreigners whenever they uh, want to buy U.S. fixed income. And I think that that sort of is probably more likely. And that's you know, proposed legislation introduced by two senators, a Democrat and a Republican, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin and Josh Hawley from, uh, I think, from Missouri. And there we're looking to, uh, to go out there and say, look, we need to start you know, taxing foreign demand for dollar-denominated investments. And that might be a way to sort of ease up on this constant demand for U.S. fixed income that's causing the dollar to get stronger and stronger, and at the same time may allow us then to have rates stabilize more around the world. If we, if we take the contrapoint to that, do we run the risk, because remember, and you know this better than anyone, part of the rationale for, for raising rates was to give the Fed some dry powder in case, God forbid, something went wrong. So the idea being that they had the room now to raise rates, and if God forbid there was a recession, they, they could lower it. Um, but do we run into a, a challenge here? Because I mean, to your point, if if uh, uh, if they're lowering rates in order to get the yield curve on par with, pardon the use of the word, but on par with everybody else, um, and if there's a recession behind the door, um, you know, even folks like Dalio are saying the Fed doesn't have much of anything else it can do to to stimulate well, the economy. You know, the argument that we've got you know, a couple hundred basis points here of ammunition that we can cut with to stave off a, a recession, I think is a little bit behind the times because every other country in the Western world has negative rates and so they have no room to cut. So why should the U.S. be the one that, that's sort of gathering the ammunition if the rest of the world decided, you know, we'll just we'll spend it all? Because the new ammunition isn't going to be from cutting rates. It's going to be from doing even more quantitative easing than we have in the past. You know, I, th I think that cutting rates is important, sure, but you know, QE is a lot more important. And what do you see as a potential catalyst for, for the shock to the system? You know, the, the, there's all these fixed income conspiracy theories that are out there. But I mean, what, what is it that's going to cause the market to reprice? I mean, where is it going to be a big default? I mean, what, where and what do you see is potentially causing this to derail? Oh, that's a good question. I think that, I think, I, I think that, that Trump, well, obviously this move, you, and you, you, you talked about this earlier, this move towards, you know, fiscal changes. Uh, in the past, it's been central banks over the last 10 years, ever since 9-11, with some central banks that have really gone out there and had to stabilize economies by cutting rates and inventing quantitative easing and you know doing all these types of things, while Congress and other governments around the world have sort of sat on their hands, relied upon the fact that the central banks would come in, get rates down very, very low, and keep the economy chugging along. I think that when the Fed and other central banks can turn around to the governments and say, you know what, we've spent everything we have, really it's down to you now, then I think you're going to see fiscal you know, you're going to see governments move in a, in a much faster way. Now, Biedman, when he was at the ECB, once turned around and said, it's incredible how the Italians and the Greek governments do things when their interest rates are high. And that was mm. during you know, the, the crisis when the euro was coming off and everyone thought Greece was going to default and the huge anxieties. And suddenly these governments that never did anything started scrambling and passing laws about spending. It was incredible to see how quickly people moved. Now, into the ECB role, we now have, you know, someone, Lagarde, and Lagarde is much more of a people person, much more of a, 
a person that's going to go out there and get consensus from world leaders, from governments to get things done, as opposed to maybe using her seat at the ECB to just cut, 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 cut. And I think we're going to see much more of a move towards sort of fiscal moves to help stimulate the economy. You know, why rely on the Fed to cut rates when we could maybe push Congress to do infrastructure spending? And I think that that's one right. of the things we've seen over a long, over the past 10 years is Congress has been very happy to bicker back and forth, but they've been, they have not been very helpful in sort of creating proposals to get the economy ticking along for the long term. The solution that, that, that governments seem to give us right now is, you know what, let's do a tax cut and we'll pay for it over the next 30 years in, in some way. And, and I think what we need is we need, to, we need to actually borrow money at these very low rates and do programs that actually get the economy moving. If we go through the political calculus of that for a little bit, if we focusing back stateside, and and again, just just to look at it very very clinically, I'm I'm hard pressed to see, even though that's the right economic outcome, I'm really hard pressed to see why the Democrats, given the way that the table is setting up. So the the another long discussion that I won't get into, but it it's looking likely that between 2020 and 2022, that the the Republicans are going to lose the Senate. There's a lot of gossip and chatter regarding the fact that the, the caucus wants McConnell out. They, they don't see him as the standard bearer for the party anymore. And they're at real risk of losing the Senate in several seats that are that are coming up. And, and if I'm a Democrat, and if I'm looking at the chessboard, why would I do anything now fiscally when, you know, to, to give Trump any room, you know, the last thing I want, you know, going back to your Mar-a-Lago quote, you know, like, you know, why would we give him the ability to have a new deal, you know, where he can spend all of this, this money when I'm getting everything I need right now. And all I, you know, I'll probably have the house, I'll probably have the Senate and, and odds are even that I can, you know, probably take back the chair in the, in the, in the Oval Office. So why would the Democrats want to support him? It's not in the Democrats, it's in the Democratic interest to push the mantra, we're going into a recession and get, you know, everyone spiked up about the recession. We're moving into recession, moving into recession. Because what the Democrats want is to be in a recession in 2020 so they can point to something. They're obviously not going to pass right. any laws until between now and 2020 and, and, and the election that's going to help the American individual from staving off a recession. And so, we, so the only way that Trump's going to be able to stave off a recession is not from getting help from Congress, but he's going to have to do some sort of executive orders that allow him to bypass Congress. Now, things that he can do and bypass Congress would be directing Treasury to go out there and intervene in the markets. Obviously, a much weaker dollar between now and 2020 would see the U.S. stock market start to rally considerably and would see manufacturing start to show some green shoots in the United States. He could also turn around to Treasury and instead of saying, you know what, we're doing tariffs now on Chinese imports, we could say, okay, now we're going to tax Chinese buying of U.S. Treasuries or Japanese buying of U.S. Treasuries or any foreigner that's sitting there that's buying U.S. Treasuries. Now you'd think, well, that's going to shoot the U.S. in the foot because we won't be able to go out there and sell treasuries, and we need treasuries, and we need, we need money in to be able to finance all the things that happen in, in our budget. 
but we're not really shooting ourselves in the foot if we truly believe that U.S. Treasuries are a Giffen good. There's no other Mm -hmm. choice out there. There's no other product out there for folks to buy. And the reality is, why would you buy Swiss fixed income or German fixed income if you're going to end up paying money to own it? Meanwhile, when you buy U.S. fixed income, right. you earn 140 basis points. You know what? Maybe we, we charge people an extra 100 basis points for owning U.S. debt. It's still going to yield more than it does in Germany. And so there's a number of things that Trump can do that can bring money in and at the same time you know, reverse things. I think it would be a great idea to turn around and say, you know what? We're not going to tax the tax. We're not going to put tariffs on Chinese goods anymore. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to turn around and we're going to tax ownership of U.S. fixed income. If you did that, the farmers now start selling their soybeans again back over to China. They're happy. We get money in the door. Maybe you have U.S. yields go up a little bit, but the truth of the matter is international folks that buy bonds would still buy the U.S. because it still would yield more than they'd find elsewhere. What can they do more proactively to... to uh forgive my use of words, unsettle the the rest of the market. So so to your point, you know, let, let's assume he has these that are there. But at the same time, what other what other tools or measures does the US have relative to negative yields worldwide that they can use? Or or are we just SOL? We just have nothing we could do against that. It's just central bank versus central bank. Well what what we can do is we can tax US fixed income such that the real yield is now equal to what the yield is elsewhere in the world. Right. And that tax carves off a gain to the U.S. taxpayer. Right. U.S. taxpayer, you know, maybe now, you know, what you'll find is, you know, China's been a seller of U.S. fixed income over the past, you know, quarter or so, and yet yields are still low in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, sure, China doesn't buy anymore. Big deal. Japan maybe doesn't buy as many as they have in the past. Big deal. But if the excuse me, do keep on buying, then you know, the U.S. is a winner. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. consumer doesn't care if foreigners are getting taxed for buying U.S. fixed income. U.S. consumer doesn't care about that. But I guess another thing would be if, if, if yields do go negative everywhere, then you have to believe that dividend-paying equities are the best thing in the world. Well, I don't want to touch that third, third rail yet because I got into a lot of trouble slash a lot of conversations on this because uh, that gets into a whole fiduciary discussion. Let me table that for one second because I want to just come back to to your your points here in terms of treasury intervention. Timing-wise, he's got to start making some decisions soon because, I mean, candidly, what you're saying in terms of taxing the debt is, is accurate and it's clever, but at the same time, the average U.S. consumer, you know, the, the the guy who's going to be buying Christmas gifts this Thanksgiving, they're going to have no idea what that means in, in terms of it. So he's, from a timing standpoint, I think you're right. I think he's done the calculus and has said, okay, there's no way that Congress is going to allow me to borrow a ton of money and do infrastructure bonds. It's just not, I'm just not going to do it. Part B is to your point, he implements measures such as this. How does he, when does he do it and how does he communicate it to folks. So the, the, cause part of me feels like if I was to take what you were saying a step further, he could make a big announcement about some BS empty trade deal with China just to take the pressure off the market that way. So the headline risk goes away and the market gets a bid on the equity side. But to your point, 
he does something clever like this that 90% of the average Americans won't really understand. But does it give him the runway into the election for substantive change well, in the economy? Well, look, the, the media and Democrats have now spun it such that tariffs are negative for the U.S. They're driving us into a recession, right? And, and that's why the stock mm -hmm. market's coming off. That, that's, that's the mantra right now. So if you used to come out on television say, and today and say, you know what, we're, get, we're scrapping all tariffs against China, trade wars over. The stock market would go up 10, 15%. Right. Joe on the street may not know what a tariff means or anything else, but the media is going to be hard pressed to say that this is going to be negative for the U.S. economy, that it's going to be negative for fixing, uh, negative for, uh, for equities. The U.S. media, because they've been spinning this mantra for so long, is going to have to turn around and say, this is great for the U.S. This is great for the economy. And folks are going to be out there cheering. Right. And at the same time, he can throw in this tax on, on you know, foreign ownership of fixed income. And, you know, the media can try to spin what that means. But the reality is it's not going to affect the U.S. consumer. Right. So for him to come out at any time and say, you know what, we're done. We're done with this uh, taxing of, of China. We found a different way automatically the stock market is going to rally huge and the media is going to have to say that this is great for the U.S. economy because they've been saying the opposite. Yeah, because to your point, they're so pregnant with it being correlated to, to a or the recession that they're not going and, to... And one thing that Trump's been very good in doing is taking a position, having the media take that position in a very strong way and then, it turn, then, then, and then turning around from the position and the media being sort of caught on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. simple examples would be, you know, with, with Me Too or, or you know, with, with um, when, when folks were out there looking and then trying to point or push Donald Trump into a corner when it came down to his reactions with, with women. And then it ended up hurting actually more Democrats than it did Republicans. And, and so, so <laughs> I, I, I just think that, it's, that he's got a canny way of sort of getting folks all hyped up about a certain idea and then pivoting. And then suddenly people realized that they couldn't that, that, that they couldn't stop themselves. And because they'd come up with this this idea, it was the wrong one. It's sort of like the way that he took the uh, he took you know a couple of members of Congress that had some radical ideas that were a little bit more socialist in nature. For example, you know, let's allow all immigrants in, made that become the mantra for the Democratic Party. And now he's got the whole all the Democrats defending that position which we know is not a very good position to hold it for, for most Americans. You know, and, and I think there's a, there's an interesting logic to the madness or madness to the logic that you lay out because you, you, I can't push back on that. The, the, the reality is that's a headline. And, and again, you know, in, in his own bizarre way, look at his testing in the market, you know, with the, uh, you know, an offline, you and I were joking about it, but, uh, you know, the infamous phone call that was made to the Chinese where the Chinese were like, what phone call <laughs> or what meeting are you talking about? And meanwhile, the market rallies on a tweet. So I think he's, to your point, he's validated that the moment he stops this, that, that, that the market has a bid. So really for him, it's a function of when does he choose to make that announcement in terms yeah. of its political okay. expediency. But he can only announce it if he can save face. Right. So for him to sit here and say, you know what? We're getting rid of the tariffs. He's got to have a, but we're doing this. And and and, and I, I believe that, you know, his, his sort of backed in a corner, he will dump the tariffs, but he's going to throw something else in there that means it's going to be, that's even bigger for the U.S. economy. 
and that would be taxing. He's already he already mentioned this week about you know why does the U.S. pay more on its fixed income than other countries in the world? Mm-hmm. Well, to mm-hmm. me that means uh, well if there's some room here and there's a lot of air between U.S. yields and foreign yields, why don't we tax that air? Let's take that air out of it. And if the Fed's not going to cut rates, well then maybe we take the air out of it through a tax, which is being suggested by both the Democrat and a Republican. How then does he, let's assume then, and I, I like the way that this is going, how then, let's assume that that's a game plan that's there or that that's a scenario that's there. Now you have the other risk where, you know, the, the Democrats are going to hold the House and if anything, they're going to gain there. And more importantly, they're probably going to regain the Senate. So if, if you're there on the Republican side of the fence, what's the calculus that you're doing as it relates to, you know, you're going to you, you may win the Oval Office, but you're going to lose the Senate. And I, and I would have to imagine that McConnell and folks are looking at this saying, OK, we, we need a plan B because there, there's been also a lot of chatter. And again, I know we're going into the, the land of the silly you know, that, that March 2020, that, that he's ultimately going to step down or recuse himself from the office where, where, where he's had enough. But I, I'm gonna, I'm, I just can't see the Republicans willing to lose the Senate, and especially given that they have a really, really good shot at, and I, I know this is horrible to say, but they have a really, really good shot at putting somebody in Ginsburg's chair. You know, what, what, what do you think the party's thinking well, about in terms of the calculus? I, I think that the party... Uh, I don't think the party believes we're going to lo- that, that Republicans would lose the Senate. I think that that's I, I I would have to disagree on that one very strongly. I think that that Trump will win. I think it will be a uh, I, I don't think it's going to be quite the contest that you're you're throwing out there. I think Trump will win. I think he'll win this. He'll keep the Senate, and I think that will actually pick up that the Republicans will pick up more seats in Congress. And I think it's because. You know, as long as he can keep the farmers happy. Now, the farmers, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories out there that the farmers are very unhappy. They're losing money hand over fist because no one's buying the soybeans. But I think, you know, I read something last week that 78% of farmers still support Trump. And I think the New York Times wrote an article saying, why are farmers supporting Trump? And it's sort of like, well, it may not be that they necessarily support Trump, but they don't support the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And then I think that that's, that's the strong point in that, you know, the Democrats don't really have a strong front runner right now. Um, and whoever it, I mean, ends up being the front runner has already said on national television during a, a Democratic, during one of the Democratic debates, that they're for free health care for illegal immigrants. And well, whereas Americans are being told that every single person in America has to buy health care. So, right. so there's a lot of corners that the Democrats are painting themselves in as they try to sort of win every vote they can. And doing that, I think, is just going to keep that base that likes Trump. It's going to keep that base with Trump. And the only way he would lose the base is if the farmers all sort of got up and walked away. But I just don't see that happening. All right. We will table that for uh, another discussion. And I'll come back with some more information in terms of some of the down ticket efforts that are underway. But but what if we, in terms of craziness and systemic shocks, um, you know, we have a, an interesting prime minister in Britain who clearly is pulling out the stops in terms of an agenda. And uh, it's really, really fascinating. On the one hand, an incredibly Machiavellian move in terms of, of, of suspending parliament. And, and on the other, I just, and again, I might just be an ignorant American here. I don't see economically 
you know, the, 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 you know, I'm hard pressed to see the rationality of why is there such a focus to, to, uh, to leave when, when, and again, maybe I'm, I'm reading the wrong stuff or listening to the wrong people. I don't see any economic outcome that's good for anyone given, given what, uh, Boris Johnson's trying to do. And I didn't know if you had any color on that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting. There, there was a tweet that went around, uh, the other day it said the unelected British prime minister is suspending the democratically elected parliament with complicity of an unelected monarch because he's worried that the elected parliament will block a form of Brexit opposed by a majority of British people. And I think that's really interesting. But what, what Boris is doing is, you know, he's following all the rules and all of the tricks that he's got as prime minister. Mm -hmm. And he's got the ability where he can stay, you know, let's, let's like, you know, let's close things down for a little while. Obviously by closing things down, it means there's not enough time for people to debate and, or there is there is time, but but such a bare amount of time that it's very unlikely that anyone that was against what he's trying to do would be able to push through some sort of view. Now, what he's doing though is he's pushing, he's making it very clear to the EU that they're very very serious, and and he made it clear as well by when he took his cabinet and he had every single cabinet minister sign something saying we're going to push for Brexit. Mm -hmm. So he's got everyone saying we're going to push for Brexit. So he's got no sort of backbenchers that would say, oh, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to waver. So he's got a very sort of focused team that say we're going for Brexit. He's now done it so parliamentary wise, they can't, you know, there's very little chance that that Brexit won't happen. And this is pushing the EU into action so that when Boris was over there in Europe, now he's got some European leaders saying, well, maybe we can negotiate a couple of things when it comes down to this exit plan. Mm -hmm. And then I think that that's what he really wants. So he's playing poker, but when you're playing the poker, you've got to bluff. And the only way you bluff is by going and, and saying there's no other options. With no other options on the table, it's going to happen. And I think in the past, Europe turned around and said, well, it's not going to happen. It's going to get pushed out. They'll vote against it. They'll do this. They'll do that. So let's just let them play around with each other. We're not even going to deal with it. And Barnier was very dismissive of May whenever she would go over there and just say, look, we've given you your options Away you go, go discuss it. Mm -hmm. Now with Boris here, it looks very, very likely, most likely, in fact, that Brexit will happen, which I think scares a lot of folk in Europe. And so now they'll sort of you know, tweak things a little bit and make it sure that it's a, a much better deal for the UK should they leave. Now, obviously, we look at it and think, well, Britain leaving the EU, that's a terrible idea. But there's still some folks that think it was a good idea. It was a 50-50 vote. It was a referendum. You have a referendum, you kind of have to go with it. But we want to make sure you get the best deal possible. And so I think that Boris is playing the game that he likes to play the most. And that's sort of like, but almost like a Trump game in that make folks think that something big's going to happen. And that's the only way you can get folks to turn around and change the views they've had for a very long time. You know, the way that we got North Korea to the table to talk, now maybe it hasn't happened or not, but the way it happened was, Trump essentially came right up in his face and said, look, bring it. And what happened then? North Korea said, okay, well, let's have some discussions. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. think that, that Boris has done this. Boris Johnson's done the same sort of thing here. He's gone to Europe and he said, look, bring it. And now they've said, well, let's have a couple of discussions. So I think that, that, that Boris Johnson's very much sort of a, got the maverick leadership style that Trump is uh, espousing in the United States, which is probably why they get along so well these days. And uh, I think that he's going to end up getting some concessions from the EU. Um, and uh, I think it'll end up being better for the UK than 
May was uh, negotiating before. So your point at the end of the day is that the EU will blink. You see them blinking. And, 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 I, I, I've got a sense they're already blinking. And remember, Merkel's not up for re-election anymore either. Right. Right. So she can sort of push things a little bit her way. Macron seems to be very much, uh, much more of a supporter of Trump. And Trump's sort of been pushing it. If, if you note, Trump's been saying, look, it'd be great for the, e, for the UK to leave the EU. We'll sign a trade deal immediately. And that's sort of like he's kind of adding more leverage in for Boris Johnson with Europe. And then he's got Trump, his buddy, kind of in his corner, pushing, pushing, pushing to help the Europeans then blink. Good stuff. Well, again, Mr. Borthwick, a very, very substantive discussion. I think we've covered uh, most things and, and I wasn't being disingenuous. I, I do want to talk in our next conversation about, um, I had a long conversation the other day, regrettably with a fellow I have to keep nameless, but a well-known academic. We were talking about what you alluded to earlier with, um, you know, we were joking around about you know, the idea that the risk-free raid is now technically a negative raid and, and what does it mean now? What's the definition of fixed income as safe versus equity as risky? And, and, um, uh, well, is it, is it, is it, is it even <laughs> called fixed income if you're paying? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, and, it, and it's really, really, uh, you know what I find fascinating and I apologize for digressing here, but, but, it's amazing all of the academic folks on the passive side who are absolutely radio silent right now. You know, there, there's no more Nobel laureates talking about set it and forget it. There, 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 what I thought was interesting and was the catalyst to the discussion was the number of lawsuits that are stepping up on the 401k side for people in these targeted funds where there's now more and more cases of, of folks who have been switched into uh, assets, because in the old days, that's what you did. You know, it's, you know, 8% equity returns, bonds having a certain yield. And, and it was, and Doug, it was, it was the most fascinating thing with this guy. We were sitting there and going over how, like, literally, if you were talking to a senior citizen today, back to your earlier point, you would actually be telling them to invest in equities and dividend paying stocks because the yields are higher and there's less volatility, you know, which is completely Everyone's pushed out the yield. Everyone's pushed out the, the, yeah. Uh, the yield curve. Yeah, sure. just incredible. So we'll we'll table that for next time. And on that note, my friend, thank you as always. You too. Thank you very much. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in, and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.